reaching up, reaching over, and reaching out. We are New Life Christian Fellowship. For service times or recordings of our weekly messages, please visit us online at www.nlcfchurch.org. Good morning. It's good to be here again this morning to fellowship together with you. To my understanding, you are going through a sermon series here in your church on discipleship and the different things that pertain to that part of our human life as followers of Jesus. I want to begin this morning by just making this statement or this comment people make sometimes and they say, I don't need anyone. And we may have said that and children may go off and pout in a corner because they don't get what they want and basically then I'm just going to separate myself, I'm going to remove myself. But it doesn't take very long and then we forget about it and then we connect with people again, don't we? The fact of the matter is we are desperately need in need of other people. We depend on other people. I've titled my sermon this morning, Dependence. I took it straight from the outline that I was given and I thought it was a good title. Dependence, acknowledging our desperate need. We have a need for other people. And let's face it, as human beings, we are incredibly limited. Just think about it. We can't even climb to the top of Mount Everest without getting into trouble physically because we can't breathe the thin air that's up there. Unless we're conditioned, I guess, but almost nobody is in that sense. And then we're so tied down to the climate. I mean, if it gets cold, we put on clothes, or jackets and whatnot. And if, if it gets very warm, we seek the shade. And then when it comes to going into the, to the, to the down below, like, well, just, you know what happened a week ago. Some people tried this little submersible and it wasn't properly built, I guess. So it collapsed in on them and they died. We need the right environment. We're so dependent. We need air to breathe. We need water for our bodies, nutrients to stay healthy. And then there's a whole emotional part of it. We get lonely if we're separated too long from other people. We get terribly lonely. Just, just think of what happens to a child, a little baby. They cry for attention. They can't be alone very long and they need somebody. They'll cry for attention. As adults, we may not cry for attention, but we have ways of trying to get it as well. Just think of how dependent we really are. And, and we're making it worse. I mean, who can live without a cell phone? Right? We there was a time in my life as a young boy, phones were non-existent. We didn't have phones when I was a little kid. My parents moved to Canada and there was this rotary dial phone and then we could call out through a landline and there was certain places had phones and you could just drive and have phones. But then it got better and better now we have cell phones and now we're, now we're tied. Now we can't, can't even think about not having it. We're dependent on them. I heard of a farmer who couldn't bring in his crop because he couldn't coordinate the workers and the tractor and the trucks and whatnot because the cell tower wasn't working, or he had no service, and said, I just can't even take the crop off my fields with this setup. 
We are becoming increasingly dependent in the physical sense, but there's a, there's a sense in which we've always been dependent, 100% completely dependent. Jesus taught us that. Jesus clearly taught that without him, we're disconnected, we're helpless, and in fact, he says we're dead. This sermon series on discipleship, it out, uh, in this series we find how incredibly important it is that we're connected to Jesus. And to be a disciple is to be connected, be connected to Jesus and have him integrated, we're integrated into each other. Jesus was very clear in his teachings that he wanted his disciples to be followers, meaning that they would literally follow him, and above all, they would think like him, teach like him, live like him. In essence, they would imitate Jesus. And what is so amazing about the scriptures is that all that God accomplishes in the world, he accomplishes through his disciples, through his followers. God works through people. Think about Abraham. We have the story in the Old Testament. God said, I want you to leave your land. I want you to go to a place I will tell you, and I'll make a great nation out of you, and everybody in the world will be blessed through you, and on it went. Then we have the story of Joseph. God used him in the land of Egypt to save up food for the starva for, to prevent starvation of many people. We have the story of Moses, God working through Moses, helping, uh, using Moses as the servant through whom he would talk to Pharaoh and re rescue Israel out of Egypt. All of these and many, many more that I could talk about all worked in the context of a dependence on God. Not a single one of them was kind of equipped, prepared, off you go, separation complete, you're independent, no. Continued interaction with God at all times. Find that in Abraham, Joseph, Moses, we're going to talk about Jesus in a minute. The interesting thing also is when we think about these stories is that there are no what you call mercenaries in God's kingdom. Mercenaries are people for hire. Uh, army, uh, countries do that. They hire armies or soldiers to fight their wars for them. They are people who the government hires, pays them, okay, you go fight this battle for us. There are no mercenaries in God's kingdom. Jesus never hired a single person to do a single job. Think about that for a moment. Everything Jesus ever did with people was always, and I will repeat, always in the context of relationship. And relationship implies dependence. I make myself dependent on him and he on me. When Jesus came to this earth, he was dependent on Mary and Joseph. He was dependent on how the Jews would treat him. He was, he, as a human being, he was dependent and, of course, we're dependent on him. Everything that Jesus ever did in terms of teaching and leading and training and what all he did, everything happened in that context, from that foundation, from that perspective. Always relationship-based. Never money-based. Never even performance-based. Status-based. Title-based. Not, it's not for hire. Discipleship and relationship cannot be separated. I want to again read the verses that were, that were read for us, but I will read it out of the ESV. In John 15, verse 1, Jesus begins, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. 
already, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. This is about as close as it can get. There's nothing closer than what Jesus describes here. There's absolutely no possibility that a branch can be separated from the vine and be a productive branch on its own. Well, now with modern science, you may say you can stick it in water, but that's not the point of the story. Jesus points to himself as the vine is the only source of true life. There's a connection that happens between him and the believers. Jesus is saying that he and his followers are inseparable. He says his father is the wine dresser, so to speak, the gardener of the, the vineyard. There's an interesting truth here. The branches all get attention. They get cared for. The branches have meaning and purpose, but only insofar as they serve a higher purpose. It's never about the branches. It's about the purpose for which the branches exist. Jesus says there's only two kinds of branches, the unfruitful ones and the fruitful ones. The unfruitful ones get removed, they get thrown away. The ones that do bear fruit, they're pruned so they can bring more fruit. The story here is an illustration of a truth that Jesus is trying to teach. It's not a story to tell us that we're literally branches, it's a figure of speech. Jesus uses this word picture to make a very powerful point. Jesus is saying that those people who are united with him, who are connected to him, they will bring fruit. And, and when they do, they will be cared for. And they are being cared for. And they will be cared for and bring more fruit. But what's the process through which all this happens? Note here. Branches that bear fruit get pruned. What is pruning? Pruning is cutting. It's cutting away the parts of the branch, the little nubs and little mini branches from the branch that hinder the growth of the branch or the performance of the branch. All branches have little branches that start out from the main branch, and sometimes they're good, sometimes not. God's the gardener. He knows which ones are good and which ones are not, and so he cuts the ones off that are not helpful. Now, of course, we could just say, let the thing grow on its own. And it, it could, and it might produce some fruit, but not nearly as well as when it's pruned and limited to its best branches to perform well. When Jesus told his disciples this illustration, he was teaching them something that's in opposition to the mindset of the world. In God's kingdom, the emphasis is more on numbers and performance and size and so on. In God's kingdom, it's about substance, the content, the, uh, the uh, integrity, the genuineness, more than outward appearance. Someone might think that, well, if a branch has a lot of fruit, won't it be a better crop? The reality is that for a branch to produce good fruit, not all the stuff that grows out of it is actually good or healthy. It may not be wrong, it may not be sin, but it's not good, it's just bad. Some people have the idea that the more they do, the better they are. We are to be diligent and serve, yes, but our value or the value of what we do is not based on the amount of work we do, but on the connection to the branch, to the vine, the connection between us and Jesus. One cluster of good, healthy grapes is much to be preferred over a branch of a lot of little clusters of small, sickly, shriveled little things that don't even, can hardly even be called grapes. So if we allow ourselves to be pruned, as Jesus says, we'll produce fruit that will glorify God and honor him. 
But truth is, pruning isn't easy. It's not fun. Sometimes God prunes things out of our lives that we want him to leave alone. It's like, God, why are you taking that away from me? I need that connection to that event, that ministry, that person, that job, that position, that income, that support base. Why are you taking that away from me? God knows we have these connections, but he wants us to be solely connected to him. And so he cuts out anything that he sees this is actually not fulfilling the branch's purpose. So he cuts it out. And oftentimes when God cuts something out of our lives, we, we, we view it as loss. And it may not be lost at all. In fact, it might be a good thing. It may simply be that God's helping us let go of something that's not helpful in our relationship to him or our walk with him. Something may be interfering in our relationship with God. The question is never, will there be cutting? That's never the question. Yes, there will be cutting. The question is, what kind of cutting? There will be healthy cutting on the productive or the healthy people. Or there will be cutting of removal of those who resist or are self-focused. The question we must ask as believers, can we trust God with our lives? Can we trust him that he will remove from our lives what needs removing so we can bring better and healthier fruit for him? But oh, we so badly want to control this, don't we? We want to be in charge of this. We want to be in control of this. To serve where I want and when I want and how I want, with what I want. I want to be in charge. Okay, Jesus, you can cut as long as you don't cut here. You can cut as long as you don't cut there. You can cut as long as you don't cut this. And that's not who God is or Jesus is. It's like, I'll follow as long as I have control. And Jesus is saying, that's not how my relationship with you works. This is an area that calls for surrender in our hearts. Notice the words of Jesus in his command as he continues. And he speaks of the importance of this relational connection to being disciples. He says in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do very little. No, you can do nothing. Fruit bearing for Jesus is connected to Jesus. We are, after all, dependent. We need him at all levels. Jesus makes this very clear that fruit bearing is tied to him. We have to keep this in mind. We have to keep this connection. We are bearing fruit through Jesus for God's glory. The word abide here is very important. Some translations use the word remain. Is there a possibility to not abide or is there a possibility to not remain? Yes, it is. There's a possibility to stop abiding, to stop remaining. If it was not possible, it would have been written differently. There's a possibility that Christians or disciples of Jesus can get distracted, can start doing things on their own strength, in their own way, in human wisdom, 
in their own time, and then we're in charge. If we seek to do good on our own strength, it won't last very long. At the start, it may even look good, feel good, because it's easy. Less stressful, less painful, more convenient. And a lot of churches, not just churches, but Christians fall victim to this. Lots of activity and events may happen, but it's easy now, it's convenient now, it's suitable now. A.W. Tozer once wrote in his writings on how sometimes the Holy Spirit just is removed from the ministry of the church. And we, we confuse all of this. And one of his writings, it goes like this. He says, he talks about the Holy Spirit and just somebody turning the crank. He says, I say this because it is possible, he says, to run a church, all of its activity, without the Holy Spirit. You can organize it, get a board together, call a pastor, have a choir and worship team, launch a Sunday school, a ladies' ministry, and so on. You get it all organized. That organizing isn't bad, he writes. I'm for that. But I'm warning about getting organized, getting a pastor, and just turning the crank. Some people think that's all there's to it, you know. He says, Holy Spirit can be absent. The pastor goes on to turn the crank. Nobody finds out for years and years. He writes, what a tragedy, my brethren. What a tragedy this can, when this can happen in a Christian church. But it doesn't have to be this way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He quotes Revelation 3.22. He continues, if you could increase the attendance of your church until there's no more room, if you could provide everything they have in churches that men want and love and value, and you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you might as well have nothing at all. And he quotes Zechariah 4, verse 6. It says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Discipleship. Relationship. Connection. Dependence. See? And turning the crank can be in busyness, self-focus, lots of activities, even self-righteous religious living. But there's no relationship, no dependence on God, no true discipleship. In the New Testament, there was a problem one time in one of the churches that Paul had started. It was coming to, they were not so much walking away into false doctrine as heresies and, and forgetting about Jesus. No, no, none of that. They were, they were very focused. They really loved Jesus and, and they, they believed in Jesus. And One day some other teachers came along and said, by the way, yeah, following Jesus is great and it's all cool, it's all good. You should believe in Jesus, you should get baptized. By the way, you still have to keep the Old Testament law. That, that comes first and, and you can be Christians if you do that. It was a church in Galatia. And this was a real problem. Paul saw this when he heard it. He knew what was going on. He wrote a letter to the church in Galatia. In Galatians 3 verse 1, he says, All foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's a hard statement that he's making here. The focus in the Christians in Galatia was shifting. What they had heard and believed was now being added to. It was not taken away, it was just added to. The focus was becoming legalistic, man-made ideas, and it was about circumcision and so on. 
And so he's, he's warning them. He says, it's not believe in me and abide in the traditions of the elders. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus did not say, believe in me and put your trust in the law. Jesus did not say, my death on the cross plus your rules. He says, abide in me. That's it. See, it has never been about a system. It's never been about activities. It's never been about doing as good as all these things are. It's about abiding and things will happen. Well, what does, what does Jesus say if abiding stops? Let's read verse 6, John 15. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown to the fire and burned. There's cutting. Cutting will happen by pruning or by removing, but either way it's happening. What happens to people who don't abide, they get thrown out. They get rejected. They're gathered, thrown to the fire and burned. I know this is hard stuff. But people who don't produce fruit, Jesus says, they will not be allowed to remain on the vine. This is one of those passages where theologians really struggle, and depending on what kind of a, um, faith tradition a person may have been raised up in, people try to wiggle their way through this somehow or other. But the point of the matter is, fruitless Christians don't remain on the vine. My comment is here, it's about relationships. Relationships are never held with a closed hand. Jesus never says, okay, I got you, and there's no way that you have any determination or that you are now under control. Jesus always holds us this way. That's the only way relationships work. And that's why the command to remain is there. If there was no opportunity to not remain, it wouldn't have been mentioned. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to people who have confessed or who have made him Lord and Savior. Let's go back to verse 3. It says, already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. It tells us who he's talking to. He's talking to those who are his, those who are clean. What comes out is this, our hope and security is in Jesus only, not in ourselves, not in a system, not in a structure. And then back to verse 6 where Jesus talks about what happens to the branches that are thrown away. But then following verse 7 right away, he says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So I can't ask God for that million, right? No. That's not what this is about. If that is still my mindset, then I still have to ask myself what my focus is. If my mindset is in tune with Christ, I will only ask what glorifies the Father and helps me in my service to him. Again, let me repeat, it's all relationally focused. And if we have the mind of Christ, as Paul writes, then what Christ wants is what I will want, and together we glorify God. Living for Jesus, walking with Jesus, is never the kind of idea that unbelievers are known so well for. Unbelievers always think about themselves first. It's like, okay, how will this make my life better? How will this make my life easier? How will it bring more convenience? It's self-focused. You get the idea. It's flawed. 
unsustainable, it doesn't work. Continuing in verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I trust we're beginning to see at this stage in, this, in the message that at no point ever is it about us. It's always about God and Jesus and him, and we are part of his, his picture. God has created us for reasons other than ourselves. He created us for himself to bear fruit. Paul talks about this in his letter to the church at Philippi. He writes in Philippians 2, verse 12 and on, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, the question is not, will there be fruit? There will be fruit. If we're in him, he's in us. We're tied to him. We're dependent on him. He's doing some pruning. There will be fruit. There will be good works. We, Jesus says, prove to be my disciples. Good works can be identified in two ways. One, who are they done for at what expense? Not for self, but for others. Second, do they glorify God, give honor and worship to God? One's life is, in fact, the proof of who one follows. There's another thought here, and it's this. Some people pride themselves in the wrong things they're not doing. And it's interesting how people who claim to be Christians, when they're challenged, oftentimes they list a whole bunch of things they're not doing. That is not very wise. If our lives would be evaluated by all the wrong stuff we're not doing, that's a very shallow evaluation. It's, it's just nonsense. In fact, the apostle James wrote, he says, he who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it sins. Just not doing wrong things is not enough. We should be doing, producing fruit. And just good deeds in and of themselves does not even necessarily mean that we are good people, that we're following Jesus. It has to, how are they done and who are they done for? The Pharisees did some good deeds, like giving money and so on. But all for selfish reasons. Jesus knew that. But Jesus goes on in verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It's, re it's a really warm, it's a really all-encompassing uh, theme here. He says, and then he closes that statement off saying, Abide in my love. Here Jesus is bringing this, all of this together into a sharper focus. If love is there, the rest will follow. If love is missing, all the rest will soon be missing too. Jesus says, as God has loved him, Jesus is here talking about the relationship that exists between him and his father. It's an open, transparent, holy, completely devoted relationship. And he says, that's what I want to be with you. And then in verse 10 and 11, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants us to use him as the template, as the example, as the role model, as the reference point, as the cornerstone from which we live our lives in all areas of our lives. 
oh, I know, we can't do it perfectly. We're all incapable of doing it perfectly. There's no such thing as really perfection here, you know. But, you know, this is where grace comes in. We can pray, trust, his death on the cross covers the whole thing. But from our point, there can be no divided loyalty. He says in verse 11 that his joy would be complete in his disciples. So what does it come down to? To be a disciple of Jesus, depend on Jesus. It's easier said than done. We are in desperate need of relationship. We cannot become what God intended us to be without a relationship with Jesus. When a relationship with Jesus is in place, everything else does become lighter. Not in the sense it goes away, but Jesus does say, take up your cross and follow me. He says in Matthew 11, take up our burden, take up his, his yoke. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, he says. Oh yes, the world will still be a mess. Monday morning will be as bad as ever in terms of everything can go wrong, will go wrong. Yeah, sure. But there'll be peace in the mess. There may even be joy in the mess and in the pain. The destiny hasn't changed. Just how we approach it may. The world may be falling apart around us. It doesn't make sense, but Jesus is the focus point. You see, we're made for relationships. Everything serves that. Satan wants to distract us, divide us, separate us, the Lone Ranger type thing, but God wants us together in unity. And everyone's invited to this. Everyone's invited to participate. When Jesus was speaking these words in John 15, he was talking to believers. He was talking to those who believed. He was encouraging them, keep their focus on him, never shift. All the world would love to divide, separate, and conquer. We don't have to follow that. But we have to remember, we're loved by God, saved by Jesus, and led by his spirit, and Jesus talks about that. We're invited to be part of the family of God and live in joy and relationship with him. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the work you've done for us on the cross to restore us back into relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. We ask that you help us understand what it means to live in a love relationship with you, where the desires of our heart become your, our, your desires become our desires. We love you, Lord. We ask you for your continued guidance and grace in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.